welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg. And on today's episode, Erin Halley joins us to talk about the highly anticipated case before the Supreme Court, Espinoza versus Montana. This case is seen as a potentially landmark education case since the ruling could settle the ongoing battle over the use of public funding for religious schools and may be poised to declare Blaine amendments unconstitutional. Before we bring her on a little bit more about Aaron. Aaron Howley is the senior legal fellow for the Independent Women's Legal Center and a senior fellow at the Kinder Institute for Constitutional Democracy. Her research interests include the separation of powers, federal courts, agricultural law, and administrative law. Her work has been published in numerous top law journals, and she is a frequent national commentator on legal issues. Aaron is a former clerk to Chief Justice John Roberts and has litigated extensively before the U.S. Supreme Court. Erin and her husband, U.S. Senator Josh Hawley, have two active boys, a dog and a horse. Erin, thank you so much for joining us again. I'm so glad to be here with you. Thank you. So first of all, I want us to just kind of back up. Let's talk about this case, Espinoza versus Montana. Can you lay out what this case is really about? Absolutely. And I loved your summary um, at the beginning here, because I think this case does have the potential to sort of uh, be the the linchpin um, that either supports or destroys uh, much of public school choice um, in our country. And the reason for this is, if you look at the Montana Scholarship Program, uh, what Montana has done here, uh, there's no question that it complies with the federal constitution and the wall of separation of church and state. So what Montana did was they said, um, we would like to establish a scholarship program. There are a number of uh, schools, uh, uh, children in Montana who would like to attend a private school, um, but we realize that many families are not able to afford this on their own. So they have the scholarship program where donors can donate to the scholarship fund. Donors donate, they receive a tax credit, and then scholarships are given to parents who choose where to send their children. And this is really important. The state is not directing funds uh, to go to a religious institution. Rather, the state sets up this program. Donors donate, uh, which is their own private choice. And then uh, parents choose which schools to send their children to. So in this instance, uh, you've got three families. Um, The one of the moms, Kinder Espinoza, is a single mom. She works two jobs. Um, She's a janitor at night and wanted to have the opportunity to send her two girls to private school um, and relied on the scholarship program. But the Montana Supreme Court, as you indicated, struck down the program under what's known as a Blaine Amendment. And for Blaine Amendments, I know that these are um, highly controversial. They're provisions that 30-some state constitutions for where they forbid any state entity from making a direct or indirect payment or aid. Um, Tell me about what the future of Blaine amendments could be depending on this decision. So, yeah. So I think in order to look at the future of Blaine amendments, we also have to look at their history. Um, And Blaine amendments came sort of their heyday was in the 1870s. And they were pushed by a senator from Maine, James G. Blaine. Now, Mr. Blaine had presidential aspirations. Um, and he sought to capitalize on a sort of wave of anti-Catholic sentiment in the country. So these Blaine amendments, as the plurality of the Supreme Court recognized in a case called Mitchell versus Helms, uh, were actually born out of anti-Catholic sentiment and the desire to keep public funds uh, from any sort of Catholic school. 
So that's their sort of odious background. And why this case could really matter is because, of course, our First Amendment has two provisions. You've got the uh, anti-establishment clause that creates the wall of separation between church and state. But we, of course, also have our free exercise clause. And what is unusual, um, permissible in some circumstances, but unusual about Blaine Amendments is that they go above and beyond the federal constitution. So they are they sort of build additional bricks on the wall between the separation of church and state. And while a state can provide additional protections, for example, in the Fourth Amendment context, in the First Amendment context, we also have another provision that protects the free exercise of religion. So it could be the case, and I think it's very much the case in this Montana case, that a state's Blaine Amendment actually runs afoul of the Free Exercise Clause. Uh, and just a few years ago, the Supreme Court held that this was the case uh, in another case dealing with Blaine Amendments um, out of Missouri called Trinity Lutheran. And I know that case was about funding for mulch and a, a playground, correct? That's correct, yes. And, and, and so the ruling, sort of on, yeah, the ruling on that one ended up being what? So the ruling on that was that a state could not expressly discriminate against a religious entity in the award of a generally available grant. Uh, so sort of in layperson terms, if the state is going to offer a program that's freely available, it can't say you cannot apply uh, because you are a church or a religious entity. They have to freely offer it to everyone. And if a religious entity meets the qualifications, uh, then they are entitled uh, to uh, whatever the program is uh, under the free exercise clause. And so oral arguments took place last week. Did you first of all hear the case that you just mentioned? Was that used as precedent in some of the oral arguments? And what did you make make of the oral arguments as a whole? Absolutely. So I think the petitioners here, the families, have a really good argument that this case is absolutely controlled uh, by the case in Trinity Lutheran. Here we have a state program that purported to be generally available, but the Montana Department of Revenue said, oh, but by the way, religious schools uh, are not able to accept these funds. They're not eligible. So that's a direct violation of Trinity Lutheran, and it is a direct violation of the free exercise clause. There is, of course, uh, the sort of now infamous footnote in the uh, Trinity Lutheran case where the uh, court notes that this is a case about playground mulch, um, not about other things. Uh, but of course, a court decision, uh, a Supreme Court decision is not supposed to be just for one case. It's supposed to be precedential. And the basic principles of Trinity Lutheran uh, definitely govern here. And as you mentioned, this is about the state of Montana. We heard oral arguments last week. I'm assuming we can expect a decision in the June um, decision release time, which is where major decisions are often released. But curious from you, do you expect June as the as a as finding out what the Supreme Court has decided? And also, what could this mean for the other states that have Blaine amendments? Those are great questions. And yes, it's possible uh, if the court. Um, since it's just January, it's possible that the case will come out earlier. But as you say, this is a very controversial case, um, involves these Blaine amendments uh, from 30 states or could involve them. Um, so, yes, I probably wouldn't expect the opinion uh, before June. And I, I think the court has a couple of different ways uh, that the case could go. I imagine that it will be a, a split case, likely 5-4. And in the oral argument, one of the sort of uh, arguments pressed by the so-called liberal justices 
was the idea that the families didn't have standing here. Uh, so Justice Sotomayor, for example, highlighted that it was the donors that received the tax credits and it was the school that received the funds. Uh, so, you know, what interest uh, did the parents have? Now, of course, the parents want to send their children to school, uh, which seems like a pretty direct injury. But it also highlights just how attenuated the flow of state funds here is to the school um, because it is broken uh, by the parents' choice. The parents can send their children to a private uh, sectarian school. They can send them to a private secular school. And the Supreme Court has been very, very clear in the federal establishment clause context that when you have third-party choice, that breaks the link um, between the state and the entity, and there can't be an establishment uh, of religion uh, so it doesn't violate uh, the First Amendment. So I think if we look at those arguments about standing, and if we look at a case called Zellman versus Harris, which upheld uh, state vouchers because of parental choice, we see here that there can't possibly be a um, establishment clause uh, violation here with Blaine amendments. I mean, it really suggests more broadly uh, the state amendments, state Blaine amendments, both because uh, of their background and then also because of their tension and conflict uh, with the free exercise clause need to go. And of course, not everybody has the same perspective as this case as you do. I want to talk a little bit about the opposition. Um, Randy Weingartner, the president of the American Federation of Teachers, said that this would be a virtual earthquake in the public education system. So it sounds like you have administrators, teachers, unions who are fearful that if the case um, goes in the way of these families, that this could lead to further funds being removed from public education, public schools, and therefore harming public schools. What do you make of some of the the attacks on this, especially from unions and teachers? Well, I think it's a, a great response uh, to those attacks is just to look at the facts of this case. Um, again, to talk about Kendra Espinoza, she's a single mom, uh, works two jobs. One of her children, um, she says, was bullied in public school because she was reading a Bible during recess. So we have a long history in this country of recognizing that parents have the right to direct the education of their children, um, and for good reason. Uh, We want parents to be invested in their children's education. Uh, Parents intuitively know what all the social science research uh, says, and is that children are different. They're unique, and they learn differently. Um, and it's a parental sort of right and also responsibility uh, that we, um, as parents, try to place our children in the place where they most thrive. And so I think when you look at the sort of parental interest in education, um, we, we see really compelling uh, evidence uh, for the availability uh, of different schools. Um, and public schools are a great service uh, to our country, um, but there are there is space for other schools and for parents to choose the schools uh, that are best for their children. And then perhaps the public schools um, can compete with these schools um, in offering better education as well. And I wonder if this, and this may not have anything to do with it, but I'm curious if this could lead to other discussions about religious institutions being nonprofits to begin with. So you talk about the tax credits that the donors receive for providing these scholarships, and then the parents can choose where they want to send their child. Is this bring up um, even more 
more questions that we may see in the future when it comes to court cases about whether or not religious institutions can be tax exempt to begin with and whether or not that is a violation of church and state? So that's a good question. So that that particular question about the tax exempt status um, isn't at issue in this case um, because it's uh, dealing more with the, the tension between a state constitutional amendment uh, and the federal free exercise clause that guarantees the right to to freely exercise our religion. Um, but it is true, as you suggest, that there has been pressure um, and different arguments made uh, by those, um, especially on the left, um, that uh, churches and nonprofits really aren't entitled uh, to this tax exempt status. And one of the arguments they make, as you say, is that this violates the establishment uh, clause because it's a separation, uh, because of the, chef- the wall between separation between church and state. But if we look um, at these cases like Zellman, I think what Zellman tells us is that when private choice is involved, that breaks the link and you don't have an establishment uh, of religion problem. And in the nonprofit context, it's, of course, donors who choose where to give their dollars. Um, And of course, the federal campaign uh, that is eligible for federal employees uh, to donate to various uh, nonprofits includes religious entities uh, in those under the federal rules. And the reason for this, again, is the recognition that it's the employee's private choice uh, to donate to a religious institution or not. Um, And it's not an establishment of religion uh, for the government to provide this generally applicable program. And I'm curious from you, since you are the former clerk, a former clerk to Chief Justice John Roberts, some are saying that we have to wait on how he decides on this, that he could be the determining decision on this, on which way it goes 5-4. Any insights into him? And since you know him and worked for him, um, any thoughts on how he's going to view this case? So I think if we look at his jurisprudence, we see uh, justice, a chief justice who has been very supportive of religious liberty. Um, I think if we look um, at a number of cases, including Trinity Lutheran um, and also the Little Sisters case, um, he has been particularly able to bring other justices along. So Trinity Lutheran was actually a really lopsided case in which almost all of the justices held uh, for the religious uh, preschool there. Uh, similarly, the Little Sisters case, the Zubit case, came out unanimously, um, again, I think because the chief justice was able to pull the rest of the court along. In this case, uh, given the 30-some Blaine amendments, I doubt that he will be able to do that. But I think if we look at uh, the history of his jurisprudence, um, that he will be a supporter uh, of the free exercise clause and that he will also find the history uh, of the Blaine amendments um, and their anti-Catholic background to be troubling. And final question for you. You're a senior legal fellow for the new Independent Women's Legal Center. I'm curious what other Supreme Court cases you have your eye on in this term. Absolutely. Well, this is an exciting term uh, for on a number of different uh, legal uh, bases. Um, a couple of cases that um, the Independent Women's Legal Center is looking at um, also include uh, religious liberty. Uh, there's a ministerial exceptions case that the Supreme Court has just granted cert on. And this sort of deals with internal church governance uh, and how uh, churches uh, go about hiring and firing uh, people that work for them and whether the state and federal government um, can interfere uh, in those internal church processes. Uh, There's also another Little Sisters case that the court just granted uh, last week, sort of a follow-on. The government is still after uh, the Little Sisters, uh, so we're hoping uh, to weigh in on that. 
Um, on a completely different front, uh, the Supreme Court has relisted a case, a cert petition on its, doc- on its docket that deals with uh, how far administrative deference goes. So under a judicially created doctrine, Chevron, a federal courts are required to defer to an agency's interpretation of a statute. Now, Justice Gorsuch and many people uh, would say that that's actually the court's job to interpret a statute, not an agency, an unelected agency. Um, but Chevron says courts have to defer. And in this crazy follow-on case, uh, the court said that they have to defer even if a federal court has interpreted a statute. So the Supreme Court says statute X means Y. The agency says statute X means Z. And then the federal court next time around has to say, actually, it means Z. Um, so this case is on the docket. And I think it's important on its own grounds, but also because it could be sort of a, a chip uh, in the Chevron wall, and it looks like the court is interested in taking it from the realist. So we're I, watching that closely as well. And I know I said final question, but one more question. Do you Would you say that there has been a dramatic increase in the amount of cases that deal with religious liberty in the past five years? Uh, absolutely. So particularly this term, um, the court has already granted that there are consolidated cases in Lady of Guadalupe, which is the uh, ministerial exception cases. Um, we have the Espinosa case um, and we have uh, the Little Sisters case. So that's four cases in just this term, um, which um, must be some sort of a record for sure. Well, we so appreciate you coming on and breaking it down in simple terms for those of us who do not have a law degree like you do. So, Erin, as always, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. And thank you all for joining us today. Before you go, I did want to let you know of another great podcast you should subscribe to in addition to She Thinks. It's called Problematic Women, and it's hosted by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans, where they both sort through the news to bring stories and interviews that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, that is, women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. Every Thursday, hear them talk about everything from pop culture to policy and politics by searching for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It does help. And we'd love it if you shared this episode so your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum. Thanks for listening.